Good evening, everyone. You could say in one of my past lives, I, I briefly played a clarinet in a jazz band. We'd play jazz tunes and some blues tunes. And I, I remember when I was getting started, one of the foundational things that I found so helpful uh, to learn, to, to get a, a, a feeling sense of what it was to play both uh, jazz and the blues, was to learn the structure of many blues tunes. And actually it's the structure that you find uh, that underlies many rock and roll songs. And that's something called the 12 bar blues. And really what the 12 bar blues is, it's this standard chord progression. It's, uh, it's usually a chord progression that consists of the one chord, the four chord and the five chord of a given key. And once I could hear and get a feeling sense of the standard chord progression, what would happen is that I started to have a feeling sense for the other chord progressions that are found in jazz tunes. And it made it so much easier to learn how to play whatever we were playing. And it was particularly helpful for improvisation because once I could hear the chord progression, like I could hear the chord progression in terms of the piano player or the bass player, I could simply follow that and it could inform my playing. And tonight I'd like to share with you a similar kind of structure that can help with our spiritual path. So it's like we're now entering into being together on this jazz band or this blues band and we're gonna get the foundation down. <laughs> And the foundation, one of the foundations that I found so helpful is this teaching that you find in early Buddhism called dependent origination. Because it's an underlying structure that you find in many of the Buddha's teaching. What is this dependent origination? How do we understand it? And the, w the way I'd like to explain it is to use a very simple definition that actually the Buddha used of it, of, of, of when he was explaining this. And it's these simple, these, these four sentences that goes, when this is, that is. From the arising of this comes the arising of that. When this isn't, that isn't. From the cessation of this comes the cessation of that. So once again, when this is, that is. From the arising of this comes the arising of that. When this isn't, that isn't. From the cessation of this comes the cessation of that. What are these four sentences referring to? if you reflect on it, it's this simple um, description of conditionality. For example, when this arises, when you have the arising, you could say, of a seed, and it arises together with a, a, a soil with certain kinds of nutrients in it, together with water and a certain amount of warmth and the sunlight, then when that arises, then what arises from that? A plant or a flower. When this arises, that arises. And then you take away one of those conditions. Maybe the, the, the plant isn't getting any water. When this isn't, that isn't. Then the plant dies. Very, very simple. We see this, this is the world that we live in. The world of conditionality. When there's these conditions, this arises. When we take away some of those conditions, those conditions cease. The Pali word for dependent origination is paticca samupada. The paticca comes from this verb apachati, which uh, uh, is uh, to come back to. And one way of, of translating is on account of. And then the, the samupada is the prefix, sam is together, and, and the, the last part of the word comes from the verb upajati, which means to arise. So an arising together. So in terms of etymology, it literally means on account of a, an arising together. On account of things arising together, this other thing happens.
And when you reflect on it, you might notice that this is, this is a, a structure that we find in probably all of the Buddha's teachings. Taking one of the foundational teachings, the Four Noble Truths. That's just a, a, a description of a, a particular kind of conditionality. When there is craving, suffering arises. You take away that condition of craving, of reactivity, then suffering ceases. And then we have a path. We have a path that's leading um, when we put those conditions in place that it leads towards this freedom from suffering. And yes, there's many versions of this d- dependent origination. Like the, the classic one is this, the, the 12 links of dependent origination. But it's not the only one. Sometimes there's 10 links, 9, 11 links, sometimes 6 links. And the reason I point this out is that sometimes we can get the sense that the, like the 12 links of dependent origination is the only way to understand this. And I really want to share that I think there's something even more fundamental that's, that's helpful for understanding all of these, these variations. And it's important. For example, Sariputta quoting the Buddha says, now this has been said by the Blessed One, one who sees dependent origination sees the Dhamma. And one who sees the Dhamma sees dependent origination. And then even further, the, the, the importance of understanding it, because it, as Sariputta explains, it is through not understanding, not penetrating this doctrine that this generation has become like a tangled ball of string, covered as with a blight, tangled like coarse grass, unable to pass beyond states of woe, the old destiny, ruin, and the round of rebirth. So the bad news of not understanding dependent origination. (laughs) Maybe we can get at least a sense of this so we can move towards a freedom in our lives. So where to begin? Where, where can we get a feeling sense of this underlying structure? How do we get a, a sense of like I did when I was playing jazz of these chord progressions? So I think the first understanding of this, when this arises, that arises, and when this ceases, that ceases, is you might hear what's in, implied in that is this quality of interdependence. Things are interwoven together in this world. They're, they interdependently arise. John Muir, who was uh, a naturalist around the turn of the century, of the last century, puts it well. He, he write, wrote this in his diary when he was um, in the Sierra Nevada of, of California. He was actually at a, a, a lake called Lake Tanaya. And he was looking at these just strikingly beautiful peaks, the, the peak of Mount Hoffman and Cathedral Peak. And he put it simply, he said, when we try to pick out anything by itself, we find it hitched to everything else in the universe. Again, when we try to pick out anything by itself, we find it hitched to everything else in the universe. Right? So simple, this is what it is. You pick up anything and it's, it's hitched to everything else. This is hitched to the earth. It's here dependent upon gravity. It's here dependent upon a certain particular distance that we're, we're traveling around the sun and all of these elements coming together. Some other examples of this, of this interdependent world that we live in. This comes from Alison Luterman. A, a short story of hers called What We Came For. And just to set it a little bit, there's this woman, she's reflecting on, on strawberries. And she says, strawberries were too delicate to be picked by machine. The perfectly ripe ones bruised at even too heavy a human touch. It hit her then that every strawberry she had ever eaten, every piece of fruit had been picked by calloused human hands. Every piece of toast with jelly represented someone's knees, someone's aching back and hips, someone with a bandana on her wrist wrist to wipe away the sweat. Why had no one told her about this before? Do you hear this insight that she has just on her reflection? That in each strawberry, right? 
there it is. It's the calloused human hands that picked it. Someone's aching back and hips, the bandana, the knees, all there just in the strawberry. And you might hear within that, just when we start to get a a feeling sense of this, just on the level of reflection, the ethical implications of this, of really the vegetables and the fruit that we eat and the people out there who are picking it and our relationship to them. There's this ethical demand when we start to understand an interdependent world. And I'm sure you've noticed inklings of this on your retreat. Have you noticed you you sit down in meditation, the mind collects, it settles, there's a quality of tranquility. There's this unbelievably pleasant experience where there's concentration and mindfulness and clarity. And then then what arises from that? Wow, I can't wait till the next retreat. Maybe I should think about the monastic life, or maybe I should become a Dharma teacher. (laughs) This fits so well. (laughs) Two hours later, you have another sitting meditation. Unpleasant, unpleasant. Your back is aching, your mind's wandering. Aversion, craving. And there's the mind, right? It's it's making plans of when you're gonna leave. The new relationship or the new job. Now there must be something better than meditating every day. (laughs) All it is, is it's just conditions arising together. This co-arising to give rise to something else. And in both of these, a pleasant experience giving rise to, to reactivity and an unpleasant experience giving rise to reactivity. I find it so helpful to become curious about these instances of my retreat in the sense of just seeing that it's just the the unfolding of causes and conditions. And I find it so relieving because that's not not about me any longer. It's just these conditions coming together. And, And this quality of interdependence is just, it pervades everything. So another example of this, I want to keep on giving examples for us to get a feeling sense of this. This comes from Nagarjuna, who uh, wrote quite a bit about dependent origination and also this quality of interdependence. And it it comes from a work of his called uh, the Ratnavali, uh, his precious garland. Just this simple statement. He says, "When when this is, that arises. So again, what is he referring to? Just what I was just sharing with you, the the description of dependent origination. So again, he begins, when this is, that is, that arises. When there is long, there is short. They do not exist through their own nature. When this is, that arises. When there is long, there is short. They do not exist through their own nature. Just to to give a visual of this, this mallet is long in relationship to the pen. There's a sense of long, of length, as a result of its relationship to this. It it, it co-arises out of the relationship. So it's not like there's inherently anything long in this or inherently anything short in this it comes out of a certain relationship. This is really what I want to emphasize, is to become curious that it's relationship that comes first. And then this arises out of that. Again, getting a sense of this. Everything is dependently arising like this. Let's take another step around this quality of interdependence, which underlies dependent origination. And one of the things that I find helpful to reflect on, just to to make sure I'm getting a feeling sense of this, is what is the opposite of interdependence? How do we usually view the world which is different than what I'm proposing to you? And that would be 
this this understanding of what I would call independence in this particular context. So how to understand independence as something opposite of interdependence. So let me take a very common perception that's dependent upon independence rather than interdependence. So for example, here all of you are, you came here, you came here maybe from Australia or Canada or New York or California or Switzerland and you came from there and then here you are, you're here at IMS and you're here in the meditation hall and then, and then you walk out of the meditation hall and then you find yourself in the dining hall or in one of the walking rooms. And then you walk from the dining hall to your room and then you find yourself in your, in, in your room. And it's this sense that I am this independent being that walks about in this world. Do you have this sense? <laughs> this is so ingrained. This is how we live our lives. Here I am and I walk through the world and it's the same person. I'm up here right now and then after this, I'll, I'll, I'll probably go into the student, uh, the staff dining room and voila, it's the same me. So we don't, we don't have a sense of the world being interdependent. We have a sense of independent things kind of bumping into each other. It's not relationship first. And it's tricky, I, I wanna point this out because we have a language, we use a language, well, most of us you know, have a language like English or similar to English where this gets reinforced. Where there is a, a, a the, 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 um, the same person that's walking around in these different places. It's interesting, other languages don't reinforce this in the same way. So for example, in Japanese, there are different words that you would use to refer to yourself dependent upon the context that you find yourself in. So it's much more of a sense of the self being contextually situated. For example, take a person who identifies as a man. And with his friends, he might uh, refer to himself as boku. With his family, otosan. And then with coworkers or a stranger, he'd use another word for this word I or me. Yet, for example, in, in English, we just have this, this one word, I, or this one word of me, if it's in a different place in the sentence, which further reinforces the sense of independence, going against this understanding of interdependence. And uh, please don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm not trying to propose that we give up the English language. <laughs> it works just fine. We're just trying to get a deeper sense of, of what's going on in momentary experience. It can be really helpful, really useful. So how can we begin, a f begin to get in a feeling sense of interdependence within our experience? rather than independence. Let's give it a try. So let's do a little experiment with um, all of you being the guinea pigs. So we'll, we'll, we'll see what it's like. What I wanna invite you to do is, uh, actually eyes open is fine, is just to notice when I ring the bell, what, what is this experience that's going on with, 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 with the ringing of the bell? So in this moment, you might be able to get a sense of this relationship that arise, arises. There's a knowing, right? There's a knowing of hearing. There's a knowing that is a process. There is a sound that's not a noun, it's simply a process. That's all there is. 
there's a sound. And it's being known. So you can start to get a feeling sense that what we're sensing into, even with the sound of my voice, is primarily a relationship. A relationship of the arising, just to keep it simple, of these two processes of a knowing and a sound, and they co-arise together. That's all it is. Or feeling the body sitting right now. What is that? What's really that right now in that experience? Uh, There's the knowing, there's the knowing and there's sensation. There's the changing sensations. It's a sensing into relationship, a co-arising. And it might become more than that. There's the co-arising of that and then there's a sense of a pleasantness in those sensations or an unpleasantness. There might be a subtle reactivity or a quality of equanimity of that knowing of sensations. Another activity might arise, the activity of thinking. And you sense the relationship, the relationship of thinking and the knowing of thinking. That's all it is, is flowing relationships. I find it so helpful just to keep that curiosity. Uh, Just to be here to, to witness processes unfolding together, processes arising and passing away together. And it's tricky because sometimes, like with the sound of my voice or the feeling of sensations and the knowing of sensations or the hearing of my voice and the knowing of that, the other feeling that begins to co-arise with that is a feeling of continuity. And then there can be the thought or the sense that it's some kind of person behind it. But can you start to get a feeling sense of that it's just relationships? So back to the garden analogy just with the seed, really what it is, is that it's, this, it's this process. It's the process of seed or seed-ing arising together with raining and the sun shining and the soil changing. And then another process arises out of that, a plant growing, a flower blooming. What I'm inviting you to do is to enter into the world of verbs and to leave aside this world of nouns. It's another drag about language. It conditions, it conditions our mind to to believe that we live in a world of nouns. It it just isn't true. I'm sorry to break the news to you. (laughs) Can you get that feeling, the feeling of unfolding? Eugene Genlin, who kind of created this thing called focusing and also uh, something called the philosophy of the implicit. He puts it very well. He says, interactions first. All living things, really all experience, are interactions first. A sense of beingness or even a sense of self arises out of relationship, arises out of interaction. And next week I'll talk about that, how out of interaction, out of relationships, these relationships comes a rising of a fixed self. Because once we can start to see that, the more we can start to be in harmony with the unfolding of things and not getting hooked by it. So my, my aspiration here is, is to simply give you an invitation. Not to think about this, but to get a feeling sense of this, to hear it. That's why I wanted to give you the, the analogy of, of playing music. 
Like I could study chord progressions for the rest of my life, but it would have never helped me learn how to improvise. I needed to feel it. I needed to feel the rhythm and the change of the, of the harmonies that were going on to really get a sense of what it was like to play jazz or even play the blues. Can you start to get a feeling sense that interactions first? This is a world of verbs. How processes are co-arising together. That right now, it's the knowing and the sound of my voice. There's, there's hearing happening and it arises because of this co-arising of sound and a knowing. One way of beginning. Okay, so that's the, f- the first thing about dependent origination, interdependence, co-arising. So we got that down, so let's move on to the second one. <laughs> the, the second understanding of dependent origination is that this dynamic of interdependence, when this arises, that arises, when this ceases, that ceases, the Buddha was interested in this in a very specific arena. And I think this is, this is really his brilliance. And it was around this specific arena of of the arising of our suffering and the arising and, and the um, uh, movement towards liberation. So really curious about this. Where, where are the conditions around this? And he offers these descriptions often in these links of dependent origination, the arising of suffering, how it arises, or the movement towards liberation. And I want to share with you an example that I, I feel helps clarify this on a a deeper level. And I get this analogy from another teacher, Ali Brasington, and I'm really grateful for this analogy because I think it points out some really important things about dependent origination in a way that we can touch and get a feeling sense for <coughs> in, our, in our retreat practice. This is the analogy he goes, he's, he says, so we have these lights in here. So we have a light, you know, on, on the wall there. And that light that's coming from that is, is uh, dependently originated, right? It's, it's arising out of a certain amount of conditions. What are some of those conditions? Well, we probably have a light bulb in there, maybe some kind of filament that, that emits this light. And that, then that's connected with uh, electrical cords, electrical wires that go to a light switch. And that light switch is in a particular place. That's another condition. And then it goes, these wires go through um, probably uh, some kind of a power uh, box or electrical box outside. And then that's hooked up to all these other wires that are, go all the way to all these uh, power generating stations, for example, all over the state. Like the, the Mystic Generating Station in Charleston, Massachusetts, right near Boston. Or generating stations south of Boston that are also, they're being powered by natural gas. Or even f- further south, the, uh, the, the Pilgrim nuclear power plant. And all, all these conditions come together. For example, the burning of the natural gas and then these wires and it being converted to electricity. The light switch in a particular way. Voila, we have light. And the reason why I'm offering this is that the, the, the Buddha was so brilliant. He, he found, um, well, let me back up. And if, in terms of the analogy, if you want to turn off the light, there's, there's a condition that is most easily influenced for that. And there's many conditions that we could change, but they might not be the ones that is most easily influenced. So what's the condition that we can most easily influence if you want to turn off the light? The light switch. It's not, it's not the electrical box outside. It's definitely not the power plant. <laughs> it's the light switch. And this was the brilliance of the Buddha. He found the light switch. He found the light switch that leads, that turns on the light of awakening and turns off. He talked about it mostly about turning off the light of our dukkha, the light of our suffering. And that was his brilliance, is finding the light switch. And I appreciate this. What I want to get into, I want to get into a little bit about these light switches and the power plants. But I find it helpful because at times, I notice that there's the skill of finding the light switch. And other times it's like, I'm driving out to like Southern Massachusetts to the nuclear power plants, trying to turn that, that generating station off. It's just crazy. 
It's like I completely missed the light switch. You might notice the same thing happen in your practice. Are you turning on and off the light switch or are you driving down to the power plant? And the Buddha proposed many different light switches. So in terms of turning off the light switch of our dukkha, we've been talking about this so much, it's really turning off that light switch of uh, reactivity or the, the word he uses in the Four Noble Truths, tanha, craving, which we can expand to reactivity. This is, this is the, the kind of simplistic thing that we're going towards is turning off that light switch. But he also gives other light switches that, that we're turning on that lead to our awakening. What's the big one we're talking about here is the, the light switch of mindfulness. Or the broader context of cultivating that which is a wholesome and that which is and abandoning that which is unwholesome. And he's very clear that this, this is very important to understand just around the wholesome. He says, practitioners develop the wholesome. It is possible to develop the wholesome or to cultivate the wholesome. If it were not possible to do so, I would not say practitioners develop the wholesome. But because it is possible to develop the wholesome, I say practitioners develop the wholesome. If this developing of the wholesome led to harm and suffering, I would not tell you to develop it. But because the developing of the wholesome leads to welfare and happiness, I say practitioners develop the wholesome. So to put it in other words, he's saying, listen, here's the light switch. What are the ways that our mind drives out to the power plant? It's probably different for everyone. Sometimes I notice on long retreats, sometimes it can come to that kind of either the aversion or craving around other yogis, wanting them to act this way or that way. Wanting to interact with yogis, wanting to avoid yogis in some kind of way. If it's not yogis, it's sometimes wanting to avoid some feeling the difficult, that difficult emotions arise. How can I run away from this? Which is a kind of power plant, you could say, that we're running out, out to. Or when the mind gets lost in flix, fixing or blaming or figuring out. Have you noticed that it has that feel that you've missed the light switch? <laughs> can you become sensitive to that, being aware of that? So I want to give an example of this, of how I missed the light switch on one retreat and how I luckily found my way back to, to that. Many years ago on a long silent retreat and uh, this is in the early morning. It was one of those early morning sits where again, the mind was collecting so beautifully and it felt so good. And it was, it was just the mind was so quiet and steady and tranquil there was no effort kind of, of, of being aware of experience coming and going. And in the middle of a sit, um, another yogi started to write in their journal right in, ahead of me. <laughs> and I think it was a pencil, but it sounded so loud, it was unbelievable. And it wasn't only the sound of the pencil, but it was the flipping of the pages. <laughs> and I thought, okay, I'm gonna just hang out with this a little bit. They can't go on for very much longer. <laughs> and then it was like one minute, two minutes of writing, three minutes of writing and flipping the pages. And then you know how the mind starts to get contracted and then time starts to elongate in some way. Then it felt like <laughs> 15 minutes, <laughs> a half an hour. <laughs> I don't know if that's true, but it felt like that. And, and then, then here were these, these conditions coming together. And it was no longer irritation. I was angry. <laughs> and then there I was. I found myself driving out to the power plant. 
So it could start with, what it started with is, I shouldn't be feeling like this. This is such a, a minor thing. There's so many people that are suffering in so much, so much more difficult circumstances than this. And here I am, overwhelmingly suffering because somebody's writing in the hall, <laughs> which wasn't so kill, uh, skillful because really what I was doing is just judging myself. Or the sense of, I should be beyond this. I've been meditating for so long. I should be beyond this. Again, that's going out to the power plant. I'm missing actually touching the experience. And then it got a little worse, which was, how can I make this go away? (laughs) I had such the impulse, which I am glad I did not act on, which was to tap them on the shoulder, just say, knock it off. (laughs) So luckily there was a, a modicum of mindfulness to see that that would have been highly unskillful. So, so my mind was so at the power plant and it was like, it was almost going to get arrested for, you know, going over the, 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 the barbed wire to get to the, the, the power plant. So how it turned, how did I find the light switch, the light switch to begin to turn off the light switch to the dukkha, to turn on the light switch that, that actually leads there? And I guess one other thing about this hook that I, I do want to name, which I, I forgot to mention, is that what was so seducing about it is that it felt justified. Have you ever noticed this? Like they say something in the hall that it shouldn't be going on, and then, and then it justifies the blaming in some way, which in some ways just makes it worse, that this shouldn't be happening. It's, it's never helped my dukkha, just so you know. <laughs> so where were the light switches? And I just want to point out, I'm just reminding you, you, you know these light switches. The first one was the, what I mentioned the other evening, was the first thing I needed to do was to have the yes. Oh yes, this is my practice and this is the gateway. This is the gateway to deepening, to deepening my path and my practice. And the reason why it can deepen my practice is because I feel so separated from my practice. So then I know it can lead deeper. So when I was saying that, I was thinking about a certain image that I find helpful, and it comes from uh, this French philosopher, Simone Weil, uh, uh, who really from the Christian tradition, and, and what she struggled with a lot in her life was feeling separate from the divine and separate from God. And her turn was when she realized that her feeling of separation was the link to the divine for her. So she gave this, this image. She said, it's, imagine two prisoners in separate prison cells and they're separated by a wall. But then the prisoners figure out if they knock on the wall, they can hear each other and they can connect. So that which separates them, the wall becomes their connection. So the separation is the link. And I just needed to remember this, the yes. Oh, this is where I'm feeling separate from the practice. Ah, this is the link to the next step in my practice. And then the curiosity. Okay, interesting. Let's check it out. What's, what's arising here? And then I needed to have, especially for me, the quality of self-compassion. Ouch, this hurts. Rather than I should get over it or I should be better than this. It was, that was my first touch of what was going on. Ouch. To actually touch the suffering, the dukkha, the first noble truth. Here it is. And it allowed the heart to soften. And then it was simply this all-important light switch of simply noticing, being mindful. What was actually going on? An unpleasant sound and reactivity. And a lot of times with these kinds of things, it's not like I find the unpleasantness and then the reactivity. I just notice that it's bunched up and there's a a kind of tracing back where the mind can start to distinguish and discern of, oh, here, this is unpleasant, it's just unpleasant. Oh, and here's the reactivity. And all it needs to do is to notice, is to notice that. And with the noticing, wisdom does its work. When that condition is there, there starts to become a space between these. And when there's space, what I notice is then the reactivity has a way of 
of letting go, of, of diminishing, of the mind releasing itself from that. And this is another place where this quality of, of understanding dependent origination I find so helpful. Because what's important is I didn't let go of the reactivity. I put forth the condition of mindfulness and then that condition led to the letting go. And this has been a very important place of being really clear about the light switch for myself because sometimes I'm trying to let go of the reactivity and really what I'm trying to do is just try to get rid of it. And what I've noticed is when the mind gets really clear about the suffering that's in reactivity, it naturally lets go. But I don't need to do that. I just need to be mindful and then wisdom takes care of the rest. Because that's all we're doing here is we're just putting forth these certain conditions to allow the practice to unfold. And this, this blends into the next point I want to make about this light switch analogy. That there's a light switch in a power plant. We're looking to turn on the light switches that lead to our freedom and turn off the light switches that lead to our dukkha. And what I want to remind you about this analogy is that it's a bad analogy. I gave you such a bad analogy. <laughs> it's a really bad analogy. <laughs> So what you need to remember in your practice is that I gave you this, this, this analogy of the light switch and that the Buddha showed us where the light switch is. But it's also a bad analogy. So to always remember that. Why is it a bad analogy? The reason why it's so, such a bad analogy is because have you noticed how easy it is to, if, if you're just to walk over there and how easy it is to turn off the light switch? You have so much control over it. It's really great. And it's so immediate. Don't you like that about light switches? <laughs> Are you starting to get why it's a bad analogy? <laughs> it's a bad analogy because we can start to have the sense that I'm in control. And if I was a really good practitioner, I'd just find the light switch and I'd turn it off. That's all there is. But, but conditionality doesn't work this way. Dependent origination doesn't work this way. It's not about being in control. It's understanding that we have this ability to influence, to cultivate, rather than control. And this has been so important for understanding to get a feeling sense for my practice. Because I can relate to it in, in such a, a more skillful way if I, if I realize I, I just have the, the, the ability to influence and cultivate, not control. And once I get that, then I can have a different relationship and a different understanding of what we're doing here. One, one example of this where I, I learned this lesson, um, it was a painful lesson. It was many years ago where I was living, I was living this life where what I was trying to do is, is I'd have odd jobs, kind of temporary odd jobs, and make enough money so I could go on a long retreat, and then I'd blow all my money, and then I'd go back and find uh, temporary odd jobs. Maybe some of you know about this life. <laughs> <laughs> and one of the, the jobs that was available for me to do um, to make this happen was uh, to, to, to be a substitute teacher at a high school which was such a practice in and of itself. <laughs> and I remember, it, I, I remember feeling, it, it, was, it was horrible. It was, <laughs> I remember. So the way it would happen is in the evening, I would get a phone call in the evening or in the morning and they would let me know if I would have work the next day or that same day. And it was this mixed feeling of feeling good because I'd be making some money that day which is always a good thing when you're trying to, 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 to stash away some money. But it was also a really bad feeling to know that I was going in. And it was always this, this push and pull of like, how much do I want the money and how much do I want to suffer? And so it was a, a difficult part of my life. And there was a sitting group in the, the town I was in. And I remember sharing this to the woman that uh, was running the, the sitting group. And... Each time she would laugh at me, which I actually didn't find so helpful, but I could understand why. 
And she said, but what she said was so exact. She said, you know, the, the reason that you're suffering is because you believe deep down inside that you should be in control. You're not in control. You can't be in control. And, and then she'd laugh some more. <laughs> he said, once you get that you're not in control, substitute teaching is not a problem. And of course, knowing my mind, I didn't believe her for a long time. <laughs> One of those crazy meditators. And then I started to reflect on it and starting to clarify, oh yeah, this is where the hook is. Is I, f- I go into the classroom and I feel like I should be in control of these students and how can I be in control of them? And once I started to get clear about, oh, where can I, where is my influence? Then it was an easy job. Where was my influence? Spelling out consequences, which was so great. Then it would be, you know, I give a test, the, the, the teacher leaves, and, and then I tell them you need to stay, you know, in front Uh, and just looking at your own paper, don't turn around. And then if you do, then there's going to be consequences to that. I have to take the tests, or maybe if you do this, then you have to go down to the principal's office. But you can do whatever you want. There's just consequences to it. And then, right, I don't have to be in control of them. They can choose. And then then it's okay. It's really okay for them to turn around. It's so okay for them to go to the principal's office. It's their decision. (laughs) It was so freeing. And yes, the classes still got a little crazy, but then I was really clear where I could influence. It's the same exact thing here. You you probably have a mind full of teenagers. (laughs) You notice that? And the problem is, is you think you can control them. Where, where is the influence? Where's the cultivation? And then it doesn't matter what happens in the classroom. If you're just clear about putting forth this simple quality of mindfulness again and again, that's all it is. And there's a clarity of doing your job. You're going in, you're doing the job of that substitute teacher. Moment after moment not getting hooked by this, this notion that I am in control. This is this art, this, this shaping model, this understanding of, of dependent origination, understanding the interdependent quality of experience but also understanding this light switch, the, the, the power plant, and how it's a bad analogy. end with a poem that I think expresses this. And it expresses um, in some ways what I was explaining in in my previous talk, but in some ways I want to repeat it in this context. Because when we really get this, that we're here to influence and to cultivate, we have to understand that what you're doing here is a kind of invisible work. It's much harder than just turning on and off a light switch. You know, the places where we have uh, more of the sense of control, it's easier to see the effects so immediately. But this is something different. It takes a while for these plants to grow. And can you still have confidence in that? And a, a poem that expresses this is this poem by Alison Litterman entitled Invisible Work. She says, because no one could ever praise me enough, because I don't mean these poems only, but the unseen, unbelievable effort it takes to live the life that goes on between them. I think all the time about invisible work, about the young mother on welfare I interviewed years ago who said, it's hard. You bring them 
You bring him to the park, run rings around yourself, keeping him safe. Cut hot dogs into bite-sized pieces for dinner, and there's no one to say what a good job you're doing. How you were patient and loving for the thousandth, thousandth time, even though you had a headache. And I, who am used to feeling sorry for myself because I'm lonely, when all the while the Chippewa poem says, I'm being carried by great winds across the sky, thought of the invisible work that stitches up the world day and night, the slow, unglamorous work of healing, the way worms in the garden tunnel ceaselessly so the earth can breathe, and bees ransack this world into being while owls and poets stalk shadows, our loneliest labors under the moon. There are mothers for everything, and the sea is a mother too, whispering and whispering to us long after we have stopped listening. I stopped and let myself lean, lean a moment against the blue shoulder of the air. The work of my heart is the work of the world's heart. There is no other art. Do you hear her examples of invisible work? Mothering, all the things that go into that. Or the way worms work in a garden, that, that invisible work. Or what's so important in this world, bees ransacking the world. Where would we be without pollinators? In the same way, we're doing this invisible work that makes such a difference in this world to really address the roots of the suffering that arises in this world. Can you have confidence in this, of putting forth these conditions to allow something new to arise in this world? So may our understanding of dependent origination, this, this, this feeling sense of this foundation, lead to the liberation of all beings. Let's sit for just a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.